This is one of the guys that a lot of people say one day he can become the president of the United States. It's a very interesting sit down, very controversial. We talk about a lot of different things and that's none other than Ben Shapiro. He graduated high school at 16 years old, okay? Apparently he was a uh, 5'2", 120 junior is what <laughs> I just found out about him. He became the youngest syndicated columnist in America at 17 years old, okay? He graduated from UCLA at 20 years old, uh, I think bachelor's in political science. Mm -hmm. And then you go to Harvard Law mm -hmm. and you graduate there at the top of your class. Then you start a consulting and a law from consulting company yourself and you go to Breibart and our Daily Wire and now you are the num he's the number one conservative podcast around the world and that's Ben Shapiro, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to have you on by Tim and here with us. So Ben, let's get right into it. I have one simple question for you before we even sure. get into all the other political questions. Your brain moves a million miles a second. It's just going, it's going so like, and when I watch your eyes, so many thoughts come out so quickly, but it's so perfect, like perfect melody when it comes out. Have you always been like this since you were a kid? Yeah. I always was able to articulate my thoughts relatively clearly, and I think it's gotten better as I've gotten older. I mean, I hope I don't speak the same way I did when I was two, but yeah. I mean, I was winning speech contests when I was in third grade, so it's not it's not a You were winning contest. speech contests yeah, at third grade. Yeah, when I was in third, yeah. So were you the kid that you always debated your mom and dad? Mom, I don't know if I agree with this, Dad, I know about, were you that Nothing kid? Nothing that I got along with my parents really well. Okay. So I, I still get along with my parents really well. They're about a mile away, so. So how did you form your political beliefs? Was it parents? Was it schooling? Was it a teacher? Was it a mentor? How did this come about for you? I'd say mostly parents, okay. uh, but that's because my, my politics, I think, are more an outgrowth of values than they are of my desires to talk about tax rates. Uh, I just, uh, I think that the stuff that really matters uh, is the is the value-based living that, that we all do. And, and so when I was young, there were a couple of rules in the house. One of them was that if you made a mess, you cleaned it up. And the other was that if you were not working hard, you weren't doing your job. And that those two things are going to make you a conservative. I mean, if you believe that, that responsibility lies with you and that effort is the key, then I think that you're going to end up probably in a, in a more conservative frame of mind just because it's a very meritocratic basis for, for living. And also, you know, even though I was a smart kid, I, I know that there are a lot of people out there who are smarter than I am, for sure. I mean, I, I went to a junior high in North Hollywood called Walter Reed mm -hmm. that had a, a highly gifted program. They give you an IQ test to get in. And I got in, but I didn't get in by like a thousand points. There were kids there who had significantly higher IQs than I did, but I just knew that I was going to have to work harder than they did. And now you, you know, Google them and a lot of them are in jail. <laughs> Are in jail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so a lot of it is effort-based and, and not IQ-based, and I think that's true for, for most most folks. Have you always been somewhat competitive? Have you always been a pretty competitive kid? Uh, I'm, uh, I mean, only, kid. Only, now, obviously, yeah. you're, you have two kids. You have family now. But I'm saying, when you were coming up, were you competitive? Uh, only competitive when challenged, and I, I think that the same thing is true. Like, I'm not looking for a competition. I'm not looking to play games with people. But if somebody starts to get competitive, then then I get competitive. So if somebody challenges you, you don't you don't at all back down. You go yeah. right back yeah. at them, whether it's the Pierce. Uh, uh, what was it, Pierce Morgan mm -hmm. uh, interview when it, 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 at that time everybody was talking about gun laws, gun this, gun right. that, and you addressed him. Whether it's a, a, another one that you were sitting next to somebody and she put her hand on you and she tried to stop yeah, you. Yeah, Zoe's her, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. I, I was watching that. But it's very easy to watch you. It's amazing. It's very interesting watching you and you just kind of see, you know, you sit there, you hear them, then you come out with an argument and all of a sudden they're backed up. They don't know what to say. Then you go back again and then the conversation is going to a whole different direction. Then they're calling names. Y you have a very interesting way of uh, uh, debating different topics that you uh, go through with people. So here's a question for you that I ask uh, Prager as well as uh, Jerry Springer. So you said your parents, you grew up knowing you have to pick up after you, you made a mess or clean up. And then you had to work hard. You had to learn about hard work, all that stuff in your family. What if your parents were Bill and Hillary Clinton? Who would Ben Shapiro be today? Hard to say because I'm not sure they were ever in the same house at the same time. But aside from that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, look, Chelsea seems like a, a nice young person. I mean, I, I, I think that you know those those values should be something relatively universal. My, my big problem with Bill and Hillary Clinton just as human beings is their focus on victimhood and politics for their own political gain, I think okay. is a real problem. My guess is that when they raise their own children, when they raise Chelsea, they're probably teaching a lot of those same values because I think all successful people of any stripe have to abide by those values. I don't think that those are political values. Again, I think that if you are successful in life, you have to abide by those two simple rules. You gotta clean up your own mess and you gotta work hard. And so if you are successful, 
then it's a pretty good shot that somebody along the way taught you those values because there are very few people who leave messes for others or are lazy who do really well in a, in, in a free country. So here's why I'm asking a question from you. <laughs> so it, both Jerry and Dennis gave two different answers. Mm -hmm. the, the question is, a big part of when I study how we form our opinions, political opinions, right? Uh, you'll see a trend with if a kid grew up in a family, loving family, the kid, you know, kid typically follows parents' uh, uh, philosophies, belief system, and then if you know, mom and dad were really loving or something was even deeper, then it becomes a crusade. Some of them become true believers. Mm -hmm. You've read some mm -hmm. of the books on true believers. You're obviously a true believer. Jerry's a true believer. Prager's a true believer. You got a lot of these guys that yeah. are true believers, right? But what if truly, what if your parents were not Bill and Hillary? Let me pick another president that was Democratic. What if your parents were Jimmy Carter? What if your father was Jimmy Carter? Very good to you, everything. Mm -hmm. Would you still be as big of a libertarian as you are today, as big of a conservative as you are today? I mean. I hope so, but I, I don't really know. I mean, I, I assume that you know the experiences that people have gone through shape their politics, but I hope yeah. that I'd, I'd wise up to Jimmy Carter's interventionist ways. I, I think that life tends to <laughs> He was to a teach brilliant you. guy, by the way. Hey, he very was a very smart guy. Yeah. I mean, Carter is a very IQ guy, very high IQ guy, but, but his values are completely wrong when it comes to politics because while he is, I think, personally an honest fellow, I think that his belief in interventionism in the free markets springs from his own belief in his own brilliance. I think that, again, one of the things that going back to that second rule about effort, the, the one, one of the corollaries of that rule is that no matter how naturally smart you are, that's not enough. You actually have to go out and, and work for yourself. What that means politically is that no matter how smart you are, you're not smarter than the crowd. So if you are the smartest guy in the room, you're still not smarter than Great all the point. other people who very are in the point. crowd put together. And I think that one of the problems you see with both Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter, both of them are very smart guys, is this belief that I'm the smartest guy in the room, therefore I know what, how to do everybody else's job. And that means that I get to centralize all power in myself, and I can order society better than everybody else's ordering society. Yeah. You know, I, haven't, I know enough about myself and I know enough about other folks to know that even if I'm smarter on a pure IQ level than somebody, there's a good shot they know a lot more about their particular business than I know about their particular business. So again, the reason why I ask this question, I'm asking it from everybody. Here's why I'm mm -hmm. asking this question. Because I think the biggest challenge, I told this to Charlie Kirk as well. I was with Charlie mm -hmm. Kirk, I think he was in Dallas. We were sitting down talking and he says, you know, I'm running this, you know, the, the organization turning that he point, has, yeah. turning a phenomenal job. I mean, Charlie's gonna be somebody in politics. Oh yeah, Charlie. I don't Charlie's know if he's awesome. gonna run for office, but he's gonna do something. Should that be head guy, of the RNC. He'd be good he at the, head of the RNC. He is amazing, right, yeah. for a guy his age. But here's what I post him. I said, so look, I'm at the hotel, I'm walking around. Everybody here seems white. He says, that's not true. I said, really, how many people you have here? He says, I have a thousand people here. I said, how many are African-American or, or Hispanic? He says, uh, we have uh, 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 26 African-American and 22 registered Hispanics. I said, you're 95% white. <laughs> that's the math. Right. You are majority white. He says, but what's your point? I said, this is my point to you. So what it seems like is the following, because look, if, if, if your answer is true as to you having the same political beliefs as your parents, so is Jerry, so is Prager, then what is the solution to somebody who isn't to help convert that person? Because to me, when right. I watch it, okay, I watch it and I say, okay, CNN, MSNBC, MSNBC is true. They'll come out and say, listen, we are left. We're mm -hmm. not arguing it. This is who we yep. are. Obviously, a couple guys they have there that's not Joe. Some of these other guys, maybe they're not fully left. CNN tries to play in the middle, but you know they're not. They're right. uh, to, to the left. Fox, yeah, right. Everyone knows it's the only one that's mainly right. But if the job is conversion, mm -hmm. not necessarily giving birth to Ben Shapiro that grew up in that family. Mm -hmm. The job is conversion. Yep. That's what we have to work on. Because when I look at some data, here's what I notice. Uh, in 1960, 68% of African Americans voted Democrat. Okay, 1960, mm -hmm. 68%. 1964, it was 94%. Now, we know why that is mm -hmm. at that time. Right now, it's 88% of African Americans, mm -hmm. they vote Democratic. Mm -hmm. On the Hispanic side, Latino side, it's about 66%. Right. For Clinton, it was about 65, 66%, mm -hmm. right? You look at this data. Yep. If our job is to get up there and just kind of talk about what we believe in, crush all these debates and make our points, oh my gosh, he killed it, all this stuff, but no one's converting, right. then it's just entertainment, yep. right? So what, what do we do to help others? And I'm, not, I'm not talking as an elitist, or we yeah. already have all, I'm just talking purely, how, are, how, how can you help other people form their own opinions when they don't have the luxury of being raised in a family like maybe yours or maybe Jerry's or Prager's, that they pretty much took the values and principles that their parents had? I mean, I think that the, the key is that 
everybody is an independent human being and you have to think as an individual. So that's why I say, you know, no matter which house I grew up in, I'm sure that would have some impact on me, but I hope that as time went on, I would learn from life experiences and that I'd start thinking as an individual, not just as my parents' kid and not just as my, my wife's husband, but, but, and not just as, you know, a Jewish guy, but as somebody who actually believes as an individual in particular points of view. And I, start, I think you're starting to see that. I think the identity politics of the left is starting to crumble a little bit because it's become so restrictive. You know, this belief that if you are a member of a particular racial group, that you no longer are allowed to think outside the box. Or if you're a member of a particular sexual orientation, you can't think stuff that other people don't want you to think. I think a lot of folks are starting to find this really restrictive and galling mm -hmm. and insulting. And they're starting to think, okay, well, maybe I'll take a look at some other stuff for myself. And when there are folks, not just like me, but obviously people like Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris or Dave Rubin, you know, people who are all over the map politically, but who are saying, listen, it's time for you to take a look at the data on your own and figure out for yourself what you think. That's an empowering thing. I'm not telling anybody what they ought to think. I mean, I'm telling them what I think, but you, you're, you're a grown up, right? You can make up your own mind, but that's the point. You are a grown up and it's your job to make up your own mind. It's not your job to, to follow what your parents told you or what your racial group says you ought to do. You think the motivation to want to step up and want to learn is higher or lower today? And why? I think it's growing. I think that you think I, think, it is growing. I do think okay. it's growing. I think that I think why do you it, think that is? By I think the way? it receded for a while, and I think it's growing now because the again the the political correctness of the left is so restrictive and so irritating and so nasty that people are just reacting to it. So you saw a story this week about a, a white girl who put on a Chinese style dress for her prom, mm -hmm. and she was getting beaten up on the internet for putting for cultural appropriation. I think a lot of people on the left look at that and they go, really? Like, this is what we're going to be now? We're going to be that if you're white, you can never wear any sort of dress from another culture, or if you're black, you can't wear any sort of thing from white culture. It, like, it's, it's so irritating and so maddening that people are saying, I don't want any part of this anymore. Like, if I'm going to be boxed into the things I can and cannot do by this group of cultural arbiters who tell me what's appropriate and what's not, when I'm doing stuff that is completely inoffensive and really not inappropriate in any objective sense, then screw that. I'll, I'll just, I'll go out and I'll start reading for myself. I'll start thinking for myself. That's why I think you see, again, that there is this growing crowd of people who are following the, this set of voices that has risen up in the last three or four years, really. And my friend Eric Weinstein calls it the intellectual dark web. And I think that that's basically right. Again, we all disagree about politics. We disagree about basic questions about God. But that doesn't mean that we are not all reading from the same hymnal when it comes to you got to think for yourself and you got to make up your own mind based on the data that, that is in front of you. So you think we're more divided today than before in the past? I, I think that we're more divided certainly now than we have been any time in the last 35 years. I 35 mean, the, years. Yeah, okay, got it. Go, you got to go back to the 60s probably, 60s and 70s. So let me ask you this. Since we're on this topic here before we transition into the next topic. So if 88% of African Americans are voting Democratic, why do they vote Democratic? Why is 88%? We're not talking yeah. 60%. So... 88% of so them. So I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that the, the media have done an enormously powerful PR job on Republicans, suggesting that Republicans are all white. Not only are they all white, they don't care about you. And that's why you know, the Democrats are, are widely perceived as caring about black folks, even though the cities that they govern have actually not done very well for mm -hmm. a lot of the black folks living in those cities, as Kanye West was pointing out. And he's right about that. You know, I, I think the, the other reason is that Republicans tend not to talk a lot about morality in politics. They tend to talk about, talk about effectiveness in politics. They'll talk about an effective tax policy. And if you're sitting there going, yeah, but my life isn't fair, then how does that appeal to you? So I think that that's another factor. And then finally, I think that there, there are a lot of folks who are growing up impoverished. This is true in every community, but there's disproportionate poverty in the black community. So we're speaking about the black community. If you grow up in poverty and you grow up where everyone around you is, there, there are not a lot of fathers in the community, there are not a lot of people who are off the government welfare system, then when someone comes to you and they say, listen, this is a meritocracy. You don't have to be on welfare. You can live, you see the big house in Beverly Hills, mm -hmm. you can live there. You look at them like they're crazy because no one you know has done that, right? It sounds like a mythical thing. Like, why would you think that literally everyone in your neighborhood gets the, you know, maybe, maybe out of a job because of, you know, history or because of circumstance or because of growing up in an impoverished area, whatever the reason is. And you're, and someone's telling you, well, you can have that $3 million house one day. And it's like, well, you sound like you're selling me a bill of goods, right? This is why I've said for a long time, I think what needs to happen is that private industry needs to go into a lot of inner cities and start actually creating scholarship programs. Some, some companies are doing this and saying to black kids, for example, listen, you're 15 years old. Yeah, I know that you think that there are not a lot, of, a lot of opportunities. You're going to a crappy public school. You feel like there, there are not a lot of dudes around in the community who are modeling great behavior uh, just as, as a percentage. So here's what we're going to do. You get good grades. You get into a good college. And we will sponsor your college with this scholarship program. And then after you're done with college, then you work for our company for three years. 
right? And that's and, and so now you're creating a system where people are either dependent on capitalism or they're dependent on government. Better they should be dependent on free market capitalism than they should be dependent on government. Because again, it's not anybody else's fault. If somebody puts a check in front of you, you're going to take it regardless of your race. Mm-hmm. This is not a racial mm-hmm. thing. If somebody puts a check in front of me, I'm going to take the check. So are you. The question is, what kind of check is that going to be? Is that going to come from private industry or is that going to come from a redistributive government program that says it has your best interests at heart and cares about you? But what is the what is the deeper deeper issue? For, okay, I'm half Armenian, half Assyrian. Yeah. And if you know if you know about Armenians, Assyrians, or Middle Easterns, they typically vote Democrats. Right. Okay. And so you'll sit there and there's this saying that you'll hear. By the way, it's it's blacks, Hispanics, Armenian, Middle Easterns, a lot of them. Jews. By the way, right? <laughs> Jews. Is, that's right. Yeah. That's very strange. By the way, yeah, with Jews as well. So and and then it's you know Democrats care for people. Republicans care for their pockets. These right. are sayings. Right. And, and by the way, here's here's the thing. It's so subtle and so effective that it sticks. Mm-hmm. Somebody says, you know what? I, I, I just, my mom told me for years, always vote Democrat because they care for the people. Right. Republicans only care for the money. Right. So someone says that, what's your say to that? And what's my answer take to that is they obviously don't care for the people because the impact of their policies has been dramatically terrible. They're, they're raking it in. Are you raking it in? How's your life? Has your life dramatically improved because of the Democrats in your area you keep electing? If the answer is no, then maybe they don't care that much. So you notice that what I'm not doing is saying, no, 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 we do care. Because once you engage in that conversation, somebody says, I don't care about you, you don't care about me. And you say, no, 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 I really do. The conversation's already over, right? If you're in a relationship and and your girlfriend says to you, you don't care about me anymore. You say, no, I really do care. The relationship's done, right? There's no way you're convincing her that you care. It's just not happening. The only way that you can can combat this politically is by saying, no, the people who you say are caring are actually not caring. Because the truth is that in politics, nobody really cares that much about you. Right, okay, the Democrats don't care about you, the Republicans don't care about you, no one cares about you. I'm honest enough to say, listen, here's who I care about. I care about my immediate family, I care about my circle of friends, and then the rest of you, I want to leave you alone. Right? And that's good. It's good that I want to leave you alone. I don't care enough about you to try and stop you. I don't care enough about you to try and, imp- to try and somehow infringe on your rights. I'm not, I don't care enough about you to think I can control your life. My job is to get people out of your way and to get everybody else out of your way so you can do what you can do. And then it's your job to succeed, okay? You're asking everybody else to solve your problems. I'm not going to solve your problems. You're going to solve your own problems. Democrats are lying to you when they say they're going to solve your problems. They're not. Republicans are lying to you when they say they're going to solve why your problems. Why do they like that, though? Why do they, why do they like that? Why is it that? Most people like that. I mean, most people like the idea that somebody's going to come in and solve their problems for them. And if you haven't grown up in, 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 in a community that suggests that it's your job to solve your own problems and suggests that, you know, where, where there have been two generations of, of heavy levels of dependence on government programs, then it's easy to equate that with caring. I, I don't blame people for that. I mean, it's like, you say, again, you say that to anybody. You say, I'm going to take away, you know, your Pell Grant to a bunch of college mm-hmm. students, and they, and they say, oh, that's terrible. How could you take yeah. away my Pell Grant? You don't care about me. My answer is, you're right, I don't care about you. Neither do the people who, who are giving you the Pell Grants. The people giving you the Pell Grants don't care about you either. They just want your vote. I care about you enough to say, listen, you're on your own. Go major in something that's going to make you some money. Right? Don't take out $120,000 in loan and go major in lesbian dance theory or something that ain't going to make any money. It's not going to make a lot of money right Right, now. exactly. Like, yeah. why, why don't you go out and get a loan from a private bank because they know they're going to get their money back, and that would actually be better for you, but that's your decision. Right? It's not my job to sponsor your life. You ever heard the saying, you know, uh, economy does better when Democrats are president? Yeah, that's that, so statistically speaking... That's true, but it is also statistically speaking true that when Republicans are in Congress of late, the, the economy has done better, right? I mean, since 1994, you get the entire Clinton boom. So you, you, you can't really, it, it, it doesn't match up quite that easily, right? It's, it's, otherwise, you have to attribute the, the beginning of the economic downturn of 2008, 2009. You have to say that the first year was Obama's fault also. Like, when does an economy become the president's? First of all, I'm not of the opinion that policy, unless there's a heavy policy change, is really what drives the economy. I don't think that tax cuts necessarily make the economy boom or tax increases necessarily make the economy spiral down. I think there are long-term effects, but they're a lot more subtle than we pass the tax cuts, the economy's booming, or we pass the tax increase, the economy immediately tanks. I don't think that macro government policy is usually large scale enough or immediate enough to make that sort of change. So, so logic, emotion. Left promote, you know, votes more emotionally. Would you say right votes more logically? I would say that I would say conservative thought is more logical than leftist thought. But you know, as far as individuals voting, I think most people tend to vote emotionally, right and left. So then, then based on what you're saying is, you know, if a marketing agency wants to hire a marketer, you got to you got to hire a, a Democrat instead of a Republican 100%. because Democrats no are question. better marketers than Republicans are. No question. I mean, if it were just about policy, then I presume that most people would vote Republican because I think Republican policies work better. But if, if it's about, you know, what face you're presenting to the world, Republicans suck at this. Republicans are awful. Right? Democrats are constantly 
saying, again, it's we care, we care, they don't care, they're bad people. They, they're, it's always character attacks from the left. On the right, it's, no, you see, it's Paul Ryan, and he's explaining why we need to restructure Social Security. Yeah, good luck with that. Democrats that lasted just, eight minutes. Right, exactly. Yeah. You've you got Joe Biden out there saying that, that Republicans want to put you all back in chains, and you have Paul Ryan saying we want to restructure your Social Security. Which one of those messages do you think is going to be more effective? So let me ask you, do, do you go to the point where if you want to go against a great marketing group, you got to play to their same, you know, uh, uh, tactic? Of, well, of, of course you have to use a certain level of emotionality when you're marketing en masse. But my goal is to, what I do, is to try and move people logically enough that we can sort of better ourselves in this way. Because I think that I'd like to live in an electorate where we actually have reasonable, decent arguments about this stuff without attacking each other personally. Yep. But if I were running a campaign, would I, would I use character attacks and, and personal attacks and emotion? Of course, because that's the way you win. Right, but that's not my job. My job. This is why I would prefer to do my job than do that job. Right. I mean, the job that I'm in, I, I prefer not to make character attacks and instead have conversations with people on the other side. And we either come to agreement or we don't. But at least our positions have been clarified. It's tough to do when 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 everybody else is doing it. You know, when when especially like even for instance, look at Romney. Romney ran terrible marketer. Oh yeah. Terrible marketer. Oh, yeah. Right. Say good person. Never drank. Sixty five years. All this stuff and. You know, he comes out with my 29 points to making the economy better. And people can't even handle one point, right, let alone right. 29 points. And then you got a Trump comes out and he says, make America great right. again, simple. And you had probably the most qualified guy to become a president was Jeb Bush. He started day one with $140 million. Mm -hmm. Father, brother, grandpa, I mean, the whole nine. And there's no charisma at all right. to get any of it done. And the marketer ends up winning. Yeah, so marketing works. So, so if that's the case, that's the case. This kind of goes, and, and I'm going to come back still to the part on uh, on voting when you say somebody's got to take the initiative to want to uh, learn for themselves. If marketing works, and take us back to social media today, like where we are right now with mm -hmm. social media today. So Kanye West comes out, and Kanye West says what he says, right? And he says, "Hey, I'm a free thinker." You know, this is how I'm thinking. And then John Legend sends him a message, says, be very, I don't know if you saw that part of text yeah, that yeah, John Legend sent, that, yeah. be very careful, you know, t teaming up with the Trump because of this. And then he says, using my family and my following and my fan base and as a legacy, fear tactic. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And my legacy, fear tactic. And then John Legend says, since you're posting my text online, I just want you to know, Here's I have a album. new hit yeah, coming, exactly, yeah. <laughs> which, which I thought, which I thought was yeah, very, no, I, you know, it's good yeah, to like see the, that, yeah, right? Yeah. You, you can see the uh, side of John Legend that maybe you didn't see, because sometimes it's complete opposite. I can't talk to you. I can't believe right. you're supporting him. So are we going in a direction, and I, again, I asked this from some other people as well, are we going in a direction where the person with the biggest following, who c c controls the biggest following, say four years from now, eight years from now, 12 years from now, a 36-year-old guy's got 193 million followers. Mm -hmm. He's going to come out and become a president just because of his following? Yeah, Are we kind of going in that direction? I don't think where we're going so in that direction. I think we're there. Okay. I mean, so, Donald Trump is the president. So, so. Then, so then let's transition to this question. If that's the case, do we have a problem with our current voting system? Well, I mean, I think that we have a problem with our current mentality. I'm not sure it's a question of the voting system. Meaning that which know, is which is easier to adjust? I mean, you really think the here's well, what I mean by I mean, what, what's the alternative? Well, no, here's what I'm asking. Do you think, you know this whole thing about when, when, uh, when people get into their 30s, and then you'll say, you know, this next generation coming up, they're kind of lazy, they're not hardworking. Yeah. I, when I was their age, you know, I would climb, you know, to school, it was snow, both, and you know, all this stuff. Yeah. But, you, but you keep hearing it and hearing it, and every generation says it about the prior generation as if their generation was the hardest right. working generation. So to me, there's a part of it where it's like, Oh my gosh, people are so lazy. No, this is a cyclical cycle that we've been going for thousands that. of years. So if that's the case, and you're saying, I think it's a mentality, do we really think systematically, percentage-wise, this mentality can be dramatically changed? Or do we need to just say, look, if we go this direction, start your political campaign at 16 years old, let's make sure in the next 20 years you got 150 million followers and say some radical things, go make some videos, go do that mm -hmm. stuff so you can become a president in 20, you know, 38, or whatever the mm -hmm, uh, timeline mm -hmm. is gonna be. That's why I go to the voting system. So are you, are you currently, with the way our voting system is, are you comfortable with the way our current voting system works? More or less. I mean, it's, it's the worst system except for all the others. So It's as, the as worst system except for the... Yeah, as, as Churchill said, yeah. I mean, yeah. democracy is not a completely flawless system. For sure. I mean, none of the founders thought that it was. None of the ancients thought that it was. No so. doubt about it. I mean, you know, and there's a lot of people nowadays that are coming out. You know how there's this whole new wave of, I don't want to have kids. I don't want to buy a house. I'm a minimalist. All this, I'm not doing this mm -hmm. anymore, right? But there's also a community that's getting bigger that's saying, I'm not voting anymore because my vote doesn't count. You're starting to hear some people say that my vote doesn't count. Mm -hmm. 
Do you agree with that? Do you agree that you know, a person's vote doesn't count? I mean, statistically speaking, it doesn't. But I mean, in terms of, of how you impact others, it obviously does. So, so I think persuasion, that, like a dinner at the household with my wife, kids, family, if I'm having a conversation about how to vote for, that can possibly go to yeah, like... Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, he, he's, he has a new book out called Skin in the Game. And his basic premise is that if you're not showing you have skin in the game, then no one's going to take you seriously. So when it comes to voting, that's the minimal skin in the game that you can show somebody is I voted for X or I'm going to vote for X that you actually, you know, did the minimum amount of driving to the polling place and doing that, that at least shows the, the people around you that you care a little bit more about politics than you're just, you know, jacking off over the dinner table. So I think that that's, that's the... That'd be a bad thing to do at the dinner table. Yeah, that would be unpleasant. It would go viral on YouTube, though, right? You could be president. It's true. <laughs> you could be president. <laughs> so um, let's, let's uh, transition into Kanye. What do you think about... Not transition. Yeah, yeah. What do you think Kanye is doing? Do you think, you think what Kanye is doing is marketing, or you think what Kanye is doing is really what Kanye is going through currently today? So I'm not going to try and read Kanye's mind because that would be absurd. Uh, I'm not sure anyone can read Kanye's mind. I mean, the guy tweets about fur pillows and antique fish tanks. Like, I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna go there. But I will say what I think is good about it, right? And what I think is good about it is that he is, yeah, as I said before, breaking free of this identity politics straitjacket that's been put on everybody. And he's saying, listen, I may not know everything right now, and I don't know everything right now, but I'm out there to learn, and I want to hear a, diff- a lot of different perspectives. Like, I thought that the, the rap that he did with T.I., and this is not my stuff, right? I don't listen to rap, but, but I thought that you what he like did... You look like a hip-hop guy. Yeah, exactly. Look at me. I'm so gangsta. But it's, is it with an A, with an ER? I don't know. Uh, but in any case, the fact that he did that rap with T.I. where he's going back and forth with him, and then at the very end he says, okay, we're going to stop it here, and then we're going to have a discussion, you know, go out and discuss... I think that's really good stuff. I think that's really good stuff. I, I, think, that, I think that the best thing that, that Kanye could do right now is to continue to just hit that point over and over and over, not to go out there and play pundit, because I don't think he's qualified to play pundit, but for him to say, listen, I know what I don't know, and what I don't know is most things, and you don't know most things either, and so for you to say that it's your job to tell me how to vote because of the color of my skin is absurd. Right, that, that, I think, would be great. Like, I think that what Kanye should do, if I were Kanye's business manager, what I'd have him do is sponsor a major convention where it was just that. It was just a bunch of people from left and right all getting together and having panels and discussions and call it Kanye Con, right? And just have it and, and have it be, you know, an open door policy where anyone can speak about anything. I think that would be great for him and I think that it'd be good for the country actually. Have you proposed that to Kanye? I have no contact. I think we gotta Kanye, make a so. short clip of this and post it straight to, yeah, exactly. to him to see if he'd but listen he listens. He can do what he wants, man. That that, yeah. that cat has has a mind of his own. He's very sure. creative, but he listens. You know, right. he listens to Candace. He's he's yeah. listening to people that are responding. Mm-hmm. You know, he's listening to people that are proposing ideas that uh, may, uh, uh, you know, kind of tickle his mind into saying, this could actually lead to me learning more. I, I almost see him, uh, from what I see, I don't know whether it's real or not, but what, what it seems to be very real is his level of curiosity. Yeah. That part to me, I think it's very sincere. And I think more than anything else, we need more people to be very curious. So let me wonder, why is UC Berkeley so much in love with Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto? What is this other guy named Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations? What was that all about? So we need more people to be curious, to be wanting to see what's on the other side. So let's talk about Trump a little bit. I mean, obviously when Trump was going, this is nothing new. You, you've, had to, you, you've had to talk about this before. You weren't a big supporter of Trump. Obviously you were not him, going no. around saying, you know, go vote Trump. I think the biggest- I didn't vote for him, I didn't vote for Hillary. Yeah. Yeah, so the, so the biggest names in the marketplace that were going against them, names, was you, and it was uh, uh, Beck, right? There, there was a lot of them, but Beck was going uh, against them. There were a bunch of folks, I would yeah. say, who, who said that they weren't going to vote for him. I think that what, what I did say during the election campaign over and over and over is here are all the flaws of them, here are all the reasons I'm not voting for him, but if you do vote for him, I Support. totally understand why you support him over yeah. Hillary Clinton. Like, I get, I get the arguments, and I find them somewhat convincing, but I didn't find them wholly convincing. You know, the, if, I, if the election were held today, I'd probably vote for him. If the election was held today, so for yeah. re-election, I mean, I, I mean that's a, that's a whole different story. So, yeah. so let me ask you this: Panel started day one. Who did you think was going to win? Republican. I'm talking 15. When the when the when who when they I first, was going who to did win? you I'm, think? Uh, I thought that the, the highest likelihood is probably Rubio. When they Rubio, first started, got it. I backed Cruz in the primaries, but I thought that Rubio was most likely. Christie bullied him a little bit in that one session when they went back yeah, and forth was, three that was, times. That was really unfortunate. I think yeah. that was a very that was, unfortunate when Christie did that. It helped uh, Trump, but I thought it was kind of it was, a... It was a political murder-suicide by Chris Christie. In a he, big took out, way. he took out Rubio, and then he was done he, that same He day, was so done was, that same, yeah. exact day. Yeah. Trump goes against Hillary. Now, obviously, I've read so many different things about this thing. Was it because he was the best possible candidate, or was it because Hillary was just the worst possible candidate on the left? So there's some of both. Um, okay. I, I would say the heavier part lies on Hillary being the worst possible candidate in the history of mankind ever. Um, in all of eternity, in any possible universe, she was the worst candidate. Uh, and the reason being, you really that believe that she was a garbage candidate. I mean, not just a bad candidate, a flaming garbage dumpster fire of a candidate. I mean, that's <laughs> like she. That, that, 
And the proof of this is that you lost Donald Trump. Like, I don't know how it's possible to lose a, a presidential election to a guy with a 40% approval rating at his height, right? So, is, so it wasn't like Trump was wildly popular and people were showing up in mass numbers to vote for him. He won fewer votes in Wisconsin than Mitt Romney did in 2012. He won the state. Romney lost the state. Why? Because Barack Obama actually won people in Wisconsin. No one showed up to vote for Hillary That's in Wisconsin amazing, or Michigan. That's amazing, what you just said. Yeah. Okay, say that one more time. So in 2012... Romney won, uh, Romney won the same number of votes as Donald Trump. Uh, Romney won slightly more, actually, than Donald Trump. In Wisconsin. Romney lost the state of Wisconsin. Yep. Trump won the state of Wisconsin. No one shows up to vote for Hillary Clinton. That's amazing. Right? No, it, people despised Hillary Clinton. I think for good reason. She was a terrible candidate, and I think she's a, she's a horrifically corrupt human being. But it's, it, so that's part of it, right? She ran a horrible campaign. She's incredibly unlikable. Like, they keep showing polls now, as unpopular as Trump is, showing that if they ran a re-election campaign now, Trump would beat her again, right? So it's not, it's not a fluke. Um, so there's that. Uh, as far as Trump being the best candidate, I think in some ways that was true. So in, in 2015, October 2015, mm -hmm. I gave a speech at University of Missouri. And this is, you know, before any of the primaries have started. And I said, I think that maybe the only person who can beat Hillary Clinton might be Trump for a couple of reasons. One, because a lot of Republicans are in this... Stra their strategy was, if I can peel off 10% of the Hispanic vote and if I can peel off 5% of the black vote, then maybe I can eke my way to a victory. Whereas Trump's strategy was basically, if I eke out 2% more turnout from the white vote than I win. Right? His strategy, which is what he did in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Ohio, he basically said, here's our base. It already went really heavily for Romney. Now I'm just going to get the turnout up in that particular group, and then I can still win the election by winning a little bit more of a group I already have as opposed to trying to peel off a large percentage of a group that I don't have. Right? The Rubio strategy would have been go after Hispanic community, try and get that 65% down to 58% for Democrats, try to get the black vote from 88% Democrat to 84% Democrat, and you win. Right? Trump's was like, okay, I'm, I know I'm going to lose this many Hispanics. I know I'm going to lose this many black folks. Instead, I'm just going to get my white percentages up a little bit, and I'm going to get turnout up a little bit. So his strategy was largely geared toward that, and I think that that was a smart strategy, just demographically speaking. The other thing is that Trump had a unique capacity to avoid the kill shot. And the reason for that is because Trump is, as I said many times, a mud monster, right? The guy is made of mud. There's just so much schmutz on him that if you throw more mud at him, it doesn't even show up. It's like black socks. They never get dirty, right? So Trump was black socks in this election. It didn't matter what you did to the black socks. They were still black. Whereas Hillary Clinton, every ounce of scandal that was put on top of her, it showed up. Yeah. Right? The, the media were trying to portray her as cleaner, as, as clean as the driven snow. And then every time Trump would flex some dirt on her, it would really show up. She would flex dirt on him and be like, whatever. I made it her. What do you want? Right? <laughs> it made no mm -hmm. difference. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was so stunned that, that his lawyer was paying $130,000 to Stormy Daniels because why? Like, if that had come out, he probably would have won more votes. Like, it, it wouldn't have hurt him in any way. Like, Trump, uh, the other thing is that Trump was willing to play dirty, right? In a way that, that Romney was not in 2012 and McCain was not in 2008. Trump was willing to play dirty. So, Trump is a hammer. And as I said many times throughout the election cycle, He's a hammer in search of a nail. Sometimes he hits the nail, and when he does, it's, it's just political magic. Sometimes he hits a baby, right? So you just don't know whether he's going to hit a nail or a baby. So when he hits a baby, we all go, oh, my God, that's just terrible. I can't that's believe right. he did that. But when he hits yeah. a nail, you're like, wow, he's the only guy in the world who would actually take a hammer to that nail. Good for him. But that, that gives him an edge. He, he can get away right. with anything, right? I mean... Yeah, at, least, at least with a certain base. Like, he's and again, even said it himself. He says, I can go out there right now. You've heard... This, you've is, heard. this is the truest thing he said. He could have shot somebody on Fifth Avenue who would have the same number of voters. No question. No question, because Hillary was that off-putting, and also because Trump, you know who he is, a known quantity. So let me ask you, when Barack Obama was done, mm -hmm. after his term, eight years, was he at a point, I mean, it, he was still loved, people liked him, it was not like his policies produced anything that was out of the ordinary, obviously we went into debt, $21 yes, trillion, dollars, sucked, but, yeah, four, okay. but still, he was liked, he was loved. It was if, he'd still, for, if he'd run for a third term, he would have won. This is not my, my question yeah. would be the following, if Biden would have ran, I think Biden would have won. That's the point. Yeah. Okay, I'm with and you I think there. If Biden, and I think if Biden runs in 2020, I think he'll win. So you think he's going to win if he runs in 2020 against I, Trump? I, I think the odds would have to be in his favor for a couple of reasons. Biden runs 2020, he beats Trump? I think that, that I'd be surprised if wow. not. But again, I, I won't put money on it because I lost a lot of money on the last <laughs> election. Right? I put, my, I put my money where my mouth was, and I lost a crap load of money because I bet on the stats. So, how, how much Never it, bet on the stats, man. Don't give odds. How much, of the, how much of the conspiracy do you buy into the fact that Clinton's had a meeting with Biden to tell him not to run? Did you read up on that at all? Yeah, Did I mean, you kind of look up? I, so what I do buy is that they went to Barack Obama and they said to Obama that we're going to use some of the money that we gather to help pay off your 2012 campaign and also that, you know, I'm, I'm obviously going to win the nomination. Don't back Biden. I think, that, I think that it was really more about Obama backing Biden than it was about the Clintons. So you Biden do believe that event took place? 
Well, there's no question that Obama probably should have backed Biden in the primaries, and probably Hillary and, and Bill went to him and said, here's all the reasons why you shouldn't back Biden, and then Obama refused to support Biden in the primaries, and that was it for Biden. How much different would have things been if Biden ran? He would have won. I mean, no, I, if I mean, he's president today, how much? How, what would have been different than what I mean, Obama was? A lot was of things would have been different. I think that you wouldn't have the tax cuts, which I think are, are quite good. I think that you, you wouldn't have the, the foreign policy, which is a lot better than the Obama foreign policy. Uh, with regard to Iran, you wouldn't have it with regard to the, the new alliance building in the Middle East between yep. Saudi Arabia, Israel, Egypt, Jordan. Uh, you, wouldn't have the, you wouldn't have the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem. You wouldn't have harsher measures in Ukraine against the Russians. Uh, you, wouldn't have, you, you wouldn't have a, uh, a domestic policy that was cutting regulation. This is, this is why I say that I didn't vote for Trump last time, but pretty good shot I'd vote for him this time because I had three worries about President Trump going in. Right, my worries were, were, one, that he wasn't going to govern conservative because he had no record. And not only did he have no record, he was all over the place during the campaign. So he'd say things like, Obamacare's the worst, it's just terrible. And then he would turn around and he'd say, universal health care for everyone. And he'd be like, okay, well, which one of those is it? Because you got to pick. Uh, and then, so I was worried about his policy. That worry's been largely alleviated, at least in the first year and a half, because he's governed conservative, like more conservative than anyone I can remember. He's given us Gorsuch, he's given us a bunch of, of, a bunch of appellate court justices. Like all of this stuff is really good. Um, my second worry is that he was going to soul suck the Republican Party, meaning Republicans were going to stop being conservative and they were instead going to look at Trump as a thought leader on issues like free trade or like Russia or on his kind of vulgar personal behavior. I don't think that's really happened so much. I think that people voted for him because they wanted the policy and because they didn't like Hillary Clinton. And I think that if somebody who were classier as a human being were to run for president and be popular enough, they'd follow that person too. So I think that that, that worry's been at least partially alleviated. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's sad to watch, I think, some people make excuses for his bad behavior. I think there are a lot of people on the right who make excuses for him, which I, I don't agree with. I can praise his policy and still think that he's kind of a heel when it comes to his personal behavior, and not kind of a heel when it comes to his <laughs> personal behavior. And then there's, uh, you know, number three, which is, him poisoning the well with a lot of young people. And I was really worried that he was going to become, as the face of the Republican Party, this toxic figure standing above the entire conservative movement. And anytime I try to convince somebody, people go, oh, well, look at Trump. I mean, he's, he, you're backing him, and he's the worst. And I still worry about that, but I think the damage has largely been done already. So yeah. him being reelected would not exacerbate the damage. It would just be a continuation of what's already happened. So most of the damage happened when he was elected in that respect. So a lot of my worries about him being elected have either been alleviated or they have, or they have um, been obviated by the fact that he's already the president. So, so it sounds like you're going to be as a, you know, you're going to lead his political campaign 2020. I would highly doubt that. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that the president wants uh, somebody out there on the campaign trail calling him a heel personally. But Here's a question but, for you. Is he a president without Kellyanne Conway? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. If 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 he didn't bring Kellyanne Conway on his yeah, team, yeah, Kellyanne was not the was not the, the person who moved the ball. Neither was Bannon. It, 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 really? Yeah, you don't not. give a lot of credit to Kellyanne Conway. It wasn't, it wasn't the messaging. Trump didn't change. Okay, Trump was the same Trump in the primaries. I think Trump she schooled a lot of these CNN and MSNBC hosts when she would sit oh, there and all I mean, the I mean, America was watching and her interviews, her interviews and persuasion. I, I mean, I think Kellyanne is is good at her job, but I I, I don't think that. You know, I don't think things radically change. Interesting. Kellyanne Conway's not on the campaign. I think that the presidential race is between the two candidates, and Trump won. So it's more about Trump than anybody else. So you're saying right now, you're not obviously you're not willing to put money on it, but you're saying right now, 2020 Biden runs, he's probably going to be winning. Yeah, you'd have to say that probably. Yeah. Just by the data, I mean, it's again, he's he's got a much higher approval rating. Trump is personally unpopular, and also Trump, he emits this feeling of chaos all the time. Like if Trump would just go into a basement for two years and just let everything calm down and cut out with the Twitter and just you know, sign a bill every so often, go to his rallies with all the yeah. people that he likes, then he, then I think he'd be in real good shape. But here's, here's the thing, and I've said this to top members of the administration. Between 2000 and 2004, George W. Bush had to pick up 11 million additional votes in order to win. Right? In 2000, he lost by 500,000 popular votes. In 2004, he wins by about a million and a half. He has to pick up 10 million votes between 2000 and 2004. Do you know a person in the United States who did not vote for Trump last time who's going to vote for him next time aside from me? Right, and the, the, there's there's not a ton of people who are out there who have been convinced to vote Trump now. Certainly not 10 million. Certainly not 12 million. Oh, he not lost 10 million. Not he 10 lost million. the popular vote by 2.5 million. Right? million. It's the flukiest election in American history. Yes. He loses the popular vote by 2.5 yes. million. He's going to have to pick up 12 to 13 million votes in the next election cycle in order to win. Are there 12 to 13 million voters who are going to show up to the polls and vote for Trump when they either didn't vote last time or are go or voted for Hillary Clinton? I I find that very hard to believe because again. He is not somebody who's winning people over. Now, it's a binary race, right? So that means that I can say that in a vacuum, but it's possible if they run somebody like Kamala Harris or Kirsten Gillibrand or somebody really off-putting, 
then Trump could win. But if they run Biden, Biden is a known quantity. People are relatively comfortable with him. Very. He's, he's, On both sides, by the way. Uh, there's a yeah. lot more comfort. I'm not comfortable with him. I think he's terrible. But, but, but there is a sense of, we've seen this guy before. So if he runs again, yeah. it's like, okay, back to stasis, back to normalcy. I think he'd have a heavy advantage in, in a run against. But it's the going, polls show that, by the way, that he's. It's, I think it's like fifty three thirty eight right now. But the so polls showed Hillary was supposed to embarrass Trump, and Trump should have just left and gone to China for six months well, for that, vacation. This is true, but, well, well, and just stay true, there. True and not true. So the national polls showed that she was going to win by anywhere from three to five points. She won by three. So the national polls were actually right. It was the state polls that were really skewed. So when I say the national polls show, you know, Biden embarrassing Trump again, that could change. We're three years out, but. The, I, I do place more credence in national polls because they have a broader sample size and because uh, the, the sample is spread out over a wider possible area. Yeah. You don't have quite as much room for error as you do in these state polls. It's going to be, it's gonna be uh, interesting. What are the chances of Elizabeth Warren? I think that she could win primaries, but it depends on who else runs in the primaries. So she's got the Hillary Clinton problem, which is that 30% of the base of the, Republic, of the Democratic Party in primaries is minority, is black. Uh, and that means that if... Kamala Harris runs against Elizabeth Warren, a lot of Democrats vote for Kamala Harris and a lot God. of black votes vote for Kamala that Harris. And that, that's a problem, right? It's, it's, it's the 2008 race all over again, basically. Yeah. Then you've got Obama versus Hillary Clinton with Elizabeth Warren playing Hillary Clinton. And we know how that ended. Right. So how about, how about this whole thing about Rock, you know, Oprah Winfrey, the whole story you're hearing about. Remember, we talked about yeah, followership yeah. and Rock's got a massive, massive followership. And the guy's probably... I don't know how many... When you run as a Republican or a Democrat, right? This is the, this is the real question. Like it, if you if ran as a Democrat, he has to embrace... The Democratic base isn't going to embrace him unless he embraces certain principles, right? They would have to embrace... He'd have to go, like, full pro-choice, uh, which I don't know where he is on that issue because uh, there's not a major Democratic politician who is not. Uh, he would have to engage in a certain amount of intersectionality, which I don't know if he's willing to do. And he, in the past, he's talked about running as a Republican, so I'm, I'm not sure whether he actually would run as a Democrat. But if he ran as a Democrat and he won the primary, he'd, he'd cream Trump. I mean, the, I don't think that'd be a close election at all, actually. Because again, he's much more popular because he's much more likable. By far. Yeah, not, by, I mean, by a mile. I'm not sure The Rock doesn't cream everybody if he runs. I mean, The Rock. <laughs> and, and by the way, he's a pretty, he's a pretty. He's a pretty he's, astute dude. I mean, he's, he's a, a pretty astute dude. That was a word I was going to use. He's a pretty astute dude. He's not a lightweight. No. I mean, he's, you know, I don't know that he's studied up on, on founding ideology, but he knows how to handle himself publicly for yes. sure. Yes. The only question is, does he want that life? You know, because cool. his life's I mean, going to change. It's, it's really, I mean, his life is so much better now than it would be if he yeah, were Yeah, why would he want that it's life? A pretty, it's, a, it's a pretty tough life. I mean, honestly. And also the campaign is really tough. Like, who really wants to leave yeah. your kids at home for a year? And then just be out on the road every day for a year. That's a, that's a really rough lifestyle. That's another thing that uh, you didn't bring up. The, one of the things I think Trump also, you know, when you were watching Facebook Lives, you saw Trump doing three, four, five, six Facebook yeah, no Lives. Question. His work ethic for a man at 69 years old oh, yeah. is insane well, to why, think about a person. That's why, listen, everybody knew that it was BS when his doctor wrote that, that note Hell, about how he's yeah. the healthiest person yeah, yeah. who ever lived, right? He's going to live to 180 <laughs> years old and all this kind of stuff. But you watch him on TV and you didn't have real serious doubts about his health because he was all over the place, whereas Hillary Clinton, they were you know, wheeling out of ambulatory care every five minutes and then she was collapsing into vans and... So the, it, did, it did give a feeling that he, he was a, a more vital personality than Hillary, no question. Yeah. So anyways, I mean, we, we're going to have to wait and see what's going to happen between now yeah. and then. So uh, question for you, going back to what we were talking about when you said mindset, right? We have, to, we have to change the way the mindset is thinking. You know, people have to go out there and uh, uh, think a different way and challenge themselves. As a person who runs a business, I have 6,500 agents around the country, 49 states. What I notice, and I try to get my guys to be thinking about this as well, you will learn pretty much everything about politics by running a business. Here's why. A person who complains the most typically does the least. Mm -hmm. It's so weird. Our top performers who do the most complain the least, okay? And it doesn't matter what's going on. A complainer always finds a problem mm -hmm. in anything that we announce. There's always something that we did wrong or something. And on the complete opposite side, you know, 11 quarters in our top line revenue keeps speeding the mm -hmm. prior best. You have these guys that are getting better and stronger and all these other people are coming up. So to me, uh, it, it, I grew up a welfare kid myself. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Glendale. I know you're Burbank. Yeah. I'm a Glendale kid. So I went to Glendale High School and in that community you saw a lot of welfare, you saw a lot of Section 8, you saw a lot mm -hmm. of those things mm -hmm. going on. And I couldn't stand it. I hated food stamps. I hated lunch tickets. Mm -hmm. I couldn't stand mm -hmm. it at all. So, so today, running a company, there are four things that really 
uh, infuriates me. One is the entitlement mentality. Mm -hmm. I'm entitled to X, Y, Z. Victimhood mentality, mm-hmm. self-pity and blame. Mm-hmm. And from your end, what are your thoughts on that? That's one. Two, what can be done about that for us to be able to shift? Somebody's watching and saying, you know what? I can't believe you're thinking this. I can't believe you said this. Some people are true victims. Some people are really going through this. You know, why can't you just stop talking about this kind of stuff? You don't understand what people are. You grew up in this one. So many people are. Yeah. What do you say about that? So what I always say to folks is show me the evidence of where you're being victimized by a particular person so I can fight that alongside you or get your nose to the grindstone. Right? You can't, you can't just claim generalized victimhood. You can't just claim generalized white privilege. You can't just claim that there's something out there in the ether preventing you from succeeding. You have to show me which policy is preventing you from succeeding or the person who is standing in your way who's preventing your success. And then I'm on your side because I don't want to see that person stop you from doing anything you want to okay. do either. But if you don't have any of that and it's just you saying that your life situation sucks, well, buck up. I mean, get over it. Like, most people throughout history have had life situations that suck. I'm lucky. I've had a really nice life. I've had a really nice, pretty easy life. But that's not true of my grandparents, and it's probably not true of your grandparents, mm-hmm. and it's not true of most people's grandparents yep. or great-grandparents. And so the bottom line is, and, and even for people who, you know, have lived a relatively easy life, it's not like they've gone through period. they haven't gone through periods that were really rough. I mean, there's no question that there's been stuff in my life. I don't like to talk about my personal life very much, but there's been stuff in my life that's certainly been very difficult. And that doesn't mean that... You know, I can blame that on society, nor should anybody else. I mean, bottom line is, as I say, if I had a slogan, you know, aside from the facts, don't care about your feelings, it'd be solve your own problems. Because most problems are, I can't solve your problems for you, and neither can society. You can solve most of the problems that are in front of you, and you certainly can't complain about society victimizing you when you're not making the most basic decisions in order to prevent yourself from being victimized, right? If you're somebody who got pregnant at 17 and had a baby out of wedlock, that was a bad decision, right? You made a bad decision there, and that's a consequence you're going to have to bear. Now, the question is, you're going to make a series of good decisions to help get yourself out of that hole and make sure that your Which kid you is okay. Which you right, see all the time. Right, which happens all the time. Yep. Or are you going to sit there and complain that America is an unfair place because as a single mother, you have to face so many more obstacles? Of course you have to face so many more obstacles. Yep. There was a decision that was made that has some obvious ramifications in the real world. And that's not to say they are a bad person. Mm-hmm. It is to say that a bad decision is a bad decision regardless of who's making it. It has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with class. Right? Anybody who makes bad decision is going to pay for that bad decision in one way or another. So make good decisions, and then you're going to have less to complain about as a general matter. So here, here's a question for you. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to draw it out. I'll just kind of say it and see uh, uh, visually maybe we can paint it. So do you think a system gives birth to a mentality, meaning a system gives birth to victim mentality, entitlement, self-pity, blame? Or do you think it's ingrained from the individual? Again, let me go a little mm-hmm. deeper in this. I'm going to go a little deeper in this so this makes sense to you. Do you remember when unemployment checks were at 24 months? Like, I was four years ago, five years ago, when mm-hmm. people get in, you could get unemployment check. Oh, this guy, you don't understand. He can't find a job. The economy right. sucks. The market sucks. And we have to extend it from 12 months to 18 months to 24 right. months. And then the moment the unemployment checks stopped, they started applying for jobs and right. all this other stuff was taking place, right? right? How did you get your job six months? Well, I didn't have a check coming in. Right. So do you think a system gives birth to victimhood mentality? Or is it the individual that thinks that way? I mean, I, I generally think that it's it's systems and cultures uh, that, that ingrain a victimhood mentality. So I think that there are obviously government incentives to believe that you're a victim in some areas, like welfare, for example. Uh, I think that there are cultural elements to, to victimhood mentality. And again, this is cross-racial. If you read Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, he talks about you know, white communities in, uh, in kind of the Appalachia area where there's this victimhood mentality ingrained. I've been screwed. Something happened to me. And it's been handed down generation to generation that you've been screwed by the society at yeah. large. And it comes from your parents. Um, yeah, and then there's some people who are just you know, predisposed to being complaining. You know, there, there, there is some biological evidence, and it's not racial in nature at all. But every individual, I mean, you know this in your own life, right? You know people who you know who've been, you know, kind of unhappy since birth, and people who are just born happier. There is some truth to that, right? Uh, absolutely. So, I, agree. so there, I, I think I that agree. you have to look at each individual to determine yeah. what was the impact on the victimhood mentality of each of these particular factors. But as an overall statement, a society that keeps promoting a victimhood mentality and, and giving you credit and kudos. The more you claim you're a victim, the more we sympathize with you and the more we feel bad for you and the more stuff we give you. That's certainly not going to, to inculcate a sense of responsibility or, or self-worth. Uh, fair enough. So, so, so what about the fact that, you know, sometimes you hear, I'm Armenian. We just had the Armenian genocide mm-hmm. April 15th. I don't know if you follow. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. We, we did a tribute on the show for you. So yeah. Armenian genocide, Assyrian genocide, Greek genocide, the whole thing with the young Turks back in the days, yep. you know, the Ottoman Empire took down a uh, total of 1.5 million Armenians, I think it's 750,000 Greeks, and 350,000 Assyrians. It's a mm-hmm. number uh, in that range. And so the Armenians, you know, they go on a march and they talk proudly about wanting to just make this a 
day that it happened. America to accept that this happened. A lot of different countries, I think it's Germany, Brazil, France, many different countries have said this event took place. Right. America hasn't done anything. No, obviously should, with our yeah. allies, with, with Turkey, that hasn't yet taken place. First of all, America what is, should, Israel should, yeah, the countries that have not should. America should, Israel should. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they haven't yet? Is it specifically the... the it's a, I assume it's a foreign policy decision. I assume that it's just, they, they feel that they're allied with the Turkish government and Erdogan, who is in fact an Islamist, uh, is uh, is spending an uh, you know he's he's basically threatened uh, that he's going to cut off military communications with particular countries uh, if they if they were to support uh, the the idea that there was an Armenian genocide although obviously there was no president has yet you know said it and obviously Barack Obama said it as a senator I think in O four right. he said Armenia was a genocide this is why I think it's a, a foreign policy issue more than it is yeah an the more I read, every every place I read about goes back to the relationship with Turkey and they have to keep it strong and all this other stuff but anyways uh, the point I was going with this was the following you'll hear sometimes people say we well, don't understand that my generation went through sla slavery my family went through slavery you know my family went through this my family went through that although it is true what I see sometimes is and I'm curious to hear your thoughts is clinging on that as the reason why I'm not winning today. I'm not winning right. today because my family went through this, my generation went through this, and you don't know what it is to have a blood that went through this. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, my feeling is that pretty much every group in history has been victimized at one time or another, and some of them more recent than others, right? I mean, the Jewish community went through the Holocaust significantly later than the black community went through slavery. But that's, the question is not where your grandparents victimized or where your parents victimized or even where you victimized. The question is, what are you going to do now? Right? Forget about history. Forget about like what happened yesterday. What are you going yeah. to do now to fix your life? And if you don't have a plan to fix your life right now, if your plan to fix your life right now is to say, yesterday I got mugged, that's not a plan. Right? And, if, and, if you're, and if your plan is to say, my grandparents got mugged, that's certainly not a plan. Right? So, so there's no question that there's been historical injustice. The question is, what are the obstacles to your success right now? If there are legal obstacles to your success, then we can work together to remove those. Because I think every good-hearted person wants to see if there is racist legislation on the books, they want to see that racist legislation go away. And we can all fight for that. That's great. But what decisions are you making in your own life? Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan? Or is your plan basically to say that until society changes, you can't change your own behavior? I mean, that's, that's a real Marxist trope, right? I mean, the, the, the Marxist ideology suggests that it's society that defines the individual, not the other way around. That you can't better yourself because society restricts you in every way. Even the language we use is patriarchal and capitalistic and all of this kind of stuff. And so we have to transform the entire society by leveling it, and then we'll have a brand new humanity. That's not real, okay? Human nature is human nature. It's always been human nature. It always will be human nature. And that means you're going to have to work within the confines of human nature. But the way to, to better yourself is to recognize those confines and then to work on the things that are wrong with you. Now, I don't know a single person who's worked on bettering themselves who hasn't actually had a better life than they started with. But I know a lot of people who have worked on bettering society who have exactly the same or a worse life it's than they had when they, were when they were trying to do that. Why do you think, do you think it's a nature thing? Is it just focuses on trying to change other people instead of myself? Yeah, it's easier. I think also because it makes you feel like you're making a difference in the world. Right? It, it, it gives it. you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of, I'm, I'm changing the world. Right? When you're 17, 18, you want to change the world. You don't want to say, okay, how do I change myself? You know, how do I make myself a better person? That's a, that's a pretty religious worldview, honestly, mm -hmm. the, the, the self-betterment yep. worldview. Uh, and it's a pretty secular worldview, the, the whole, we've got to change the world around me and we're going to fix the world and the world has to be fixed. It's as Thomas Sowell says, the, the quest for cosmic justice. It's a lot more romantic, the quest for cosmic justice, than the quest to you know, work two hours longer at the, at the McDonald's so you can take that money and then, and then create a college fund. Like that's, that's not quite as romantic. Have you and Thomas ever done anything together or no? Thomas oh, yeah, I interviewed, yeah, I've interviewed him several times. Yeah, Thomas yeah. Sowell. Very, uh, He's obviously, great. his, his one book, what was it, uh, uh, Reason? Was it Reason or a Reader? I don't know what it was. He has a book where it was similar to Marcus Aurelius' Meditations where he talks about all these different mm -hmm. areas of life. And yeah. I thought it was incredible. Sowell's fantastic. I People mean, have asked me for years, if I could select any person in the United States to be president, who would it be? And I always say Sowell. Sowell's, Sowell's great. I am a diehard Milton Friedman fan, and it was great seeing these two guys when they were going at it back in the days with the real debates, the Buckleys, the oh, yeah. Vidal. I mean, you could see some of that stuff. So to, to finish up with your thoughts, you wrote two books. I mean, you've written a lot of, I think you've written seven books, and your last one was a New York Times bestseller, Bullies, right? Yeah, it, 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 a couple of months ago, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so let, let's talk about the, the brainwashed one, about the educational system, mm -hmm. and then let's talk about the bullies one, and then let's wrap it up from there. So, brainwashed. You wrote this book. I think the title, uh, uh, title How is Brainwashed. How Universities Indoctrinate America's Youth. How yeah. Universities Indoctrinate American Youth. So, talk about that a little bit. So, the college system, unfortunately, is not built for actual inculcation of skills, except in certain particular areas. So, if you're in the STEM areas, then maybe they're teaching you a skill set that you can use. Like, my wife was a, a, a neuropsychology major, 
a neurobiology major, and she's a doctor. So that was obviously teaching her to become the, the predicate for a doctor. I was a poli major. I didn't learn anything, right? It was a complete waste of time. Uh, the only thing it was good for was credentialing so then I could go to Harvard Law School. Uh, the same thing is true in a lot of the liberal arts. And those liberal arts, which originally were designed to sort of broaden your worldview and make you think in a new way, it's not really about that anymore. A lot of professors are using these as sort of little indoctrination centers for their own particular political point of view. And that's what that book was about. It was about the fact that so much of higher education is stacked with this, with even in the syllabus, with a particular political worldview that is that is of the left. I mean, there's almost universal condemnation of the right on college campuses. I think part of that is, again, you have a bunch of very smart people who are sitting around talking with each other, and they think, okay, if we ruled the world, the world would be a better place. Uh, and part of that is also that there's a self-perpetuating system in academia where in order for me to get a PhD, I have to find a professor at the university to sponsor my dissertation. Well, if that person's on the left, they're not going to be sponsoring a right-wing dissertation. So you're almost appointing your own successors. Once you have a bunch of left-wing professors who are at the top of the PhD system, the next round of professors are almost universally going to be members of the, the political left. Let me ask you, are professors out of touch of reality? I mean, a lot of them are. I mean, a lot of them aren't working in the in the real world. A lot of them are they're, they're getting a hundred fifty thousand dollar, two hundred thousand dollar salary for talking about ideas that have been obsolete for a hundred years. So that's that's not you know that's not a great way to stay in touch with with current. W- would you current pu- would you put them and a billionaire's kid in the same world? As in, you know, when you have you've been so out of touch with what really takes place out the, in the world. But you speak and everybody's like, oh my gosh, but this person's a professor, but this person's a... You think there's yeah, a little th- bit of that eliteness going on? Oh, there's there no where- question. There's, a, yeah. there's an elite mentality. And when I, when I first started at Harvard Law, uh, we had a, a big event. And Elena Kagan, who's now in the Supreme Court, was the dean at Harvard Law. And we had this big event. It was like 500 students are opening class. And we were in this beautiful room. I, I'm trying to remember which hall it was, but it was this, this gorgeous room. Uh, and, it's, and we're all sitting there. And she turns to all of us and she says, listen, you're here now. The competition's over. Okay, so don't worry about competition with each other. The competition's over, you're here. You guys are gonna be ruling the universe. You're gonna be you're gonna be running the Supreme Court, you're gonna be running Congress, you're gonna be running the presidency. It, the people in this room are gonna be running the world. And I just thought to myself, why? Wow. Like why? Like because we scored well on the LSAT? Like the, the, so that but that mentality is pretty prevalent at a lot of top universities, so, and particularly I, among professors. It's interesting. I, I was at Harvard Business School during the first uh, uh, Clinton-Trump uh, debate. Mm-hmm. And I was there for their OPM program. I don't know if you're the yeah, yeah. owner-president management process, like a three-week mm-hmm. program, you stay in campus. So I'm asking all the professors, hey, so w- which way you lean politically? And you just listen to everybody, how much they were bashing Trump the entire time, yeah. right? So then the night comes where everybody's gonna go out there and watch the debate. And we're in this one hall, I don't know, it was a, the Chow Hall, really high-end Chow Hall by some gentleman named Chow, I actually believe, okay. right? His name is actually Chow. So we're sending 200 people there. Ben, if there was five people that were rooting for Trump, yeah. that would be a big number. Oh yeah. I could not believe oh, it's universal. how yeah. many people were all Hillary. And I think some of that is because of the policy, and some of it is there is a cultural disdain for Trump because Trump is obviously, you know, I, I won't say that Trump, I think Trump's a real high IQ guy. I don't think he's a real high IQ guy. And there's a real intellectual... You think or you don't think? I do not think. I think that there, I think there's a real intellectual elitism at, at a lot of these so institutions. So even though he went to Wharton, you don't put him as a high IQ guy? No, I mean, have you seen him tweet? I mean, no. I think he went to Wharton because his daddy was rich. You don't uh, I know think a lot he's of people, a high IQ guy? Wow. No, I mean, I've said this over and over. I, I really don't think that he's a, you know, so I, don't think, you I don't think he's a dummy, but I don't think that he's, I don't think he's like a would you consider him 30, as a, 140 IQ guy. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that, but would you consider him like a, if you had to have one of them being a wartime general based on strategies, who would you choose, him or Obama? Strategy, strategic. Well, I, th- I think I think Obama's a better stra- uh, strategist than, than Trump. Got it. I think he's a better political strategist than Trump too. I think I think Trump's a better puncher, but I think I think Obama's a better strategist. Wow, so it depends. You need a general okay. who's going to run. You know, you need a general for a frontal attack to run somebody over. You pick Trump. You need somebody who's going to, you know, figure out a, a couple of clever flanking maneuvers. You probably pick Obama. But I wouldn't want Obama as commander in chief, let alone a general. So. Yeah, it, it, you know it, 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 the, the the analogy doesn't quite fit. I don't want yeah. I don't want Obama anywhere near our military. So so let's talk about the other book, your your uh, one of your recent books, Brainwash. Bullies, yeah, yeah. bullies. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. bullies. Yeah, why don't you why don't you talk about that a little bit? So, I mean, the basic thesis of bullies is that the left has decided that they no longer want to take part in serious argumentation. They prefer to slander your character. So if you are a if you are a pro gun person, it's not that you're pro gun because you have certain principles and those principles differ from anti gun people. It's that you hate children. You don't care if they're dead children. Uh, if you are a person who doesn't believe that the welfare state is, is a good thing and you think that it promotes a victimhood mentality and you think that it makes people dependent on government, it's not because you care about people, it's because you hate poor people. 
And this has been the left's consistent line of attack mm -hmm, for years mm -hmm. and years and years yep. and years. Uh, it's only exacerbated in recent years. It's gotten a lot worse, I think, in recent years. I think that's why you're seeing a backlash now. Because now, if you if you so much as breathe the wrong way, the left declares you a bad person and untouchable and a deplorable. And once you throw enough people out of the out of the window by calling them deplorable, you find that there are more people outside the window than inside the inside the tent. Uh, and then you've got a problem on your hands. I think that's what's happening to the left right now. They've declared so many people are are out of the realm of reasonable discussion. And it's like five of them who are left in the realm of reasonable discussion. You have to be somewhere in the in the Bernie, San Bernie Sanders, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Ber uh, Hillary Clinton triangle. If you're in that triangle, then you're, you're fine. Good. If but you're if you're not, outside that triangle, then we can't even talk with you. You're a bad person. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. I, I actually think from watching it from the outside, I think the level of accountability is higher today with the media than before. No question There's about a bit that, of yeah. a threat. There's a bit of a... Let me be careful what I, I mean. You just watch Lemon is a little bit more uncomfortable. You watch the guys on MSNBC, they're a little bit more comfortable, uh, uncomfortable than they were before. Yeah. It's like we can no longer just say a propaganda type of a thing and it's going to be fine. Someone's going to come and call us out uh, tomorrow. By the way, we talk about Trump and Twitter. Uh, I think Jack Dorsey mm -hmm. needs to send a love letter oh, no to question. Trump because Trump brought so much value to Twitter stock no at a point when Twitter was. No one really knew where Twitter was going. Twitter became what it is after Trump yeah, kind of came back. Yeah, it's a new center because Trump uses it as his press that's office. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly. that's yeah. where I go now. I wasn't there before, hey, but now it's a new center that you go I to. I run a website. Every morning you wake up and see what the news cycle is by checking Trump's Twitter feed. Yeah, so. There you go. It's, it's, it's the most exciting one. So, Ben, three books that changed uh, uh, your your way of thinking, three books that had the most influence on you, what would you think? Uh, what so would you say they were? Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, which okay. is a really good kind of slim primer on, on economics. Uh, Quest for Cosmic Justice by Sowell uh, and The Federalist Papers. Uh, so the, those would be the three off the top. I mean, aside from the Bible, obviously, because I grew up with that. But uh, the, the but three that I picked on my own <laughs> would be would be those three. Very cool. Okay, so Ben, your handle on Twitter is at, at Ben Shapiro. Yep. Just Ben Shapiro the way it is. Mm -hmm. So whether you agree or disagree, and if you like that idea he brought up with Kanye West, by the way, I kind of thought that was a pretty be fun. Kanye Khan. Kanye Khan. And, and Ben is there one is. of the ones that goes there. Send Ben a tweet at Ben Shapiro and let him know what your biggest takeaway was from today's interview. And if you like the idea with Kanye West, also... Put the handle at Kanye, whatever uh, Kanye's handle is, we'll put it up here on the screen as well. Put both of them together. Push Kanye to watch this interview. Maybe he's going to reach out to Penn to do something with them. Again, brother, thank yeah, you for making the time. It. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David, and I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.